Now, this morning, we're continuing with our series called Tightening the Knot. We want to tighten the knot. It's a series about marriage. And whenever we have a series, we always have an outcome. Now, first, let's talk about the outcomes that we don't want from this series. First of all, the desired outcome from this series is not complacency. Sometimes when we feel that our marriages are in a healthy spot and we hear that the sermon's about marriage, we think to ourselves, well, I'm good. Maybe I'll go outside and help with setup and breakdown. Maybe I'll go do something else. But we don't really need that. It's not the outcome. Or if you're single, you're not married, it's like, ah, it doesn't really apply to me. Let's not be complacent this morning. The outcome is also not going to be condemnation. The Bible says the Son of Man came not to condemn the world. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. A conviction is what happens when you're presented with a gospel truth that compels you to pursue God, to come closer to God, to get to know him more. Condemnation happens when there is a truth or maybe even an opinion presented that tells you to run from God. God will never tell you to run from him. That's never him. It's not his voice. And that's not the goal of this series. The goal of this series is to create clarity. And the reason why we need to create clarity about marriage is because marriage can be awfully mysterious. Our main passage today is going to come out of Ephesians chapter 5. And one of those of verses in that passage, and I won't read the whole thing right now, but that verse says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Marriage can be a mysterious thing. And the messaging around marriage can be muddied or blurred and lost in this world because there are so many mixed messages about love and marriage. So that's why we want to create clarity. So why don't you join me in prayer as we ask God to create clarity for us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you created marriage and you have a plan for it and you desire to see great things come out of it. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would clarify your desire for marriage this morning. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is Mixed and Fixed Messages. Mixed and Fixed Messages. Because God wants to fix the message of marriage in the world. Of course, it only needs to be fixed because it's a little bit broken. We have all heard mixed messages about marriages. Now, these messages come from literally everywhere. We cannot avoid them. Obviously, today is the Super Bowl. Any football fans? Who's a football fan? See Donnie over there in his Cowboys jersey, bro, praying for you, man. JC would wear a Cowboys jersey too, but, you know, it's okay. Um, A lot of us like football. A lot of us like fantasy football. I'm a pretty avid fantasy football player. Decent at it. You know, ask about me. But it's impossible for me to go and check my team on Yahoo without hearing the latest celebrity gossip. I found out about... Kim Kardashian and Kanye West before Jerrica did. And I did it. I'm not trying to find out. I don't care. I, I like Kanye's music. Jesus walks with me. But it's there and it's unavoidable. It's literally everywhere we look. In fact, it's even in Ali's programming. Now, ever since we took our daughter Ali to Disney on Ice, we've been watching even more Disney at home. And Disney has a lot to say about love and marriage. Now, got a special treat or two in just a few moments. But first, you might be familiar with this movie. It's called Frozen. And you guys can 
come on up and get ready for your part. But uh, Frozen, it's a recent movie. You know, a lot of our kids, especially the younger ones, they're watching this. Now, one of the songs in the movie Frozen is called Love is an Open Door. Now, this song comes on after Anna meets Christ, not Kristoff, the other dude, Hans. Yeah, put Hans on him. Now, they meet and they quote-unquote fall in love and they sing this song together. Because the message that this song is portraying is that when you meet the right one, it's love at first sight. And because love is an open door, you need to run right in. Now, of course, like Elsa told Anna, you can't marry a man you just met. But that's the message portrayed by this song, that love is an open door. Now, of course, this is a newer movie. I want my child, my daughter Allie, to be cultured. So I want her to get to know the classics too. And one of those classic movies is called Sleeping Beauty. And in Sleeping Beauty, there is a song called Once Upon a Dream. Now, I love Disney music, and I love the songs, and uh, I shouldn't sing it, but I married a singer, so there you go. Just start the slide over again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like I miss my cue. There we go. There we go. My daughter wants to come up. Okay. Once Upon a Dream puts forth a message, and in this message, the idea is that there is a dream partner for all of us, an ideal partner, a dream boy, a dream girl that we have to wait on, like a fairy tale. Now, we talked about a newer movie, we talk about an older movie, but those aren't from my generation. My generation includes another movie, such as Aladdin. Now, Aladdin has one of the greatest Disney love songs of all time, but... I'll let DJ and Leia tackle that one. Check, one. One more time. One more time. Run it back. I had to grab the mic. Thank you, guys. Okay. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess, now when did 
you last Let your heart decide I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over sideways and under On a magic carpet ride A whole new world A new fantastic point of view no one to tell us no or where to go or say we're only dreaming All right, it's my turn. Sally. Anyway, a, a whole new world puts forth the message that love is a thrilling experience that you share with someone. And there are highs and there are lows, but as long as you're with that person you love, you can journey on your magic carpet through it all. Now, sometimes the messages put forth by our society are incredible, and they're wonderful, and they're beautiful. And sometimes... They're not. For example, if love is an open door and you can enter freely, then what stops you from exiting freely? And what if you meet the dream girl, the dream boy, and that person eventually changes? Now, obviously, we change physically. Jerrica will tell you that my pant size has increased since we got married. And so has the number on the scale. We change physically, and we change the way we think. We change the way we feel. We become different people. What if the person you married, or the person you started out with, is no longer the same person? Do you just wake up from your dream? And is that without consequence? And of course, love is a thrilling experience. And it is a ride. But what happens when you're on the under part of over, sideways, and under? What if instead of taking a magical trip around the world, you're just taking multiple trips to the grocery store because the avocados were cracked and the bananas were spoiled? And by the way, that's not a hypothetical. That happened this week. Sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not. And that's why these are mixed messages. And mixed messages about marriage produce mixed results. About 45% of marriages today end in divorce. And that's nearly twice the rate as it was in 1960. In just one generation, we've seen marriage kind of be challenged at an unprecedented level. And that's why we need to be careful in the middle of all of these mixed messages. So the Bible tells us this in Ephesians chapter 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the rest of Ephesians 5 will help us understand what the will of the Lord is, in particular regarding marriage. God intended marriage to mirror the message of the gospel. That's what he wants it to be. God intends marriage to mirror the message of the gospel. So God created marriage, and he cares deeply about marriage, so much so, in fact, that there's a, there's a wedding in the beginning of the Bible. God makes the world, let there be light, and let there be plants, and let there be the world in Genesis 1. And in Genesis chapter 2, 
we see Adam and Eve and the very first wedding. And by the way, God performed that first wedding ceremony himself. He marries them and creates a covenant between them. Then as you fast forward through the Bible, there's a marriage at the end. In Revelation 21, it's a figurative marriage. It's, it's, it's an analogy. It's not literal. But Jesus is married to the bride of Christ. He's married to the church. We're joined together with him throughout all of eternity. So there is marriage in the beginning and marriage at the end. God obviously has a purpose and a plan for marriage. Now, we started having this conversation last week. Pastor Roland opened it up and started to lay the foundation. We encourage you to go back. But today we're going to zero in on what might be the most important part of God's plan for marriage. And to do that, our main text will be in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this might be the Bible's most famous passage on marriage. But what if I told you it's not just about marriage? In fact, marriage might not be the most important part of this passage. So let's go to this passage together and let's see if we can figure out together what this passage is all about. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 32, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, this passage is about two different things. One, it's about marriage. But what's number two? Christ and the church. And who is the church? It's us. It's about God's relationship with us. It's about Jesus and his love for us. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. It's the good news about Jesus and his love for us. Some people think of a marriage as a love story. Well, if that's the case, then the gospel is the story of God's love for us. And the gospel is the key to understanding marriage. Because God intended marriage to mirror the gospel. And if we can understand the gospel message, then we will understand the marriage message. If we can understand the love of God revealed for us in the gospel, then we can understand the way we are to love one another. So what does the gospel message teach us about the love of Christ for us? Now the gospel itself is really woven throughout the entire Bible. Now we don't have time to read the entire Bible today. I think some of us have plans later. But we can at the very least review the gospel. Now in the Every Nation family, one of our co-founders, Dr. Rice Brooks, wrote this statement to summarize the gospel. A lot of times in Christian, Christianity, or really other religions too, but mostly in Christianity, we refer to a statement of faith or a statement of belief as a creed. So this is a gospel creed written by our co-founder, Dr. Rice Brooks, who also wrote the book, God's Not Dead. And here's how this creed goes. It says, the gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived, 
and die the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he is the Son of God and offering the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins to everyone who repents and believes in him. Now, how many of you think that's good news? This message about Jesus is very good news. In fact, it's the news by which we're saved. But now let's look at four elements of the gospel, four different aspects of the gospel that have implications on marriage. First, the gospel reveals to us that Jesus rejected sin to remain committed and exclusive. That's what's implied by Ephesians chapter 5 when it says he gave himself up. Now we know that Jesus gave himself up on the cross. And that's what our minds immediately go to. But that's not the only time he gave himself up for us. Along the way, as he lived his life, he also gave up every opportunity to sin along the way. Now, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. In fact, Jesus was tempted face-to-face by Satan himself. And yet, in spite of this temptation, Jesus didn't sin. Now, that's not because sin wasn't somehow appealing to Jesus. Right? Lust would have been appealing to Jesus. Lying would have been appealing to Jesus. Gossip would have been appealing to Jesus. Now, just because you're tempted, it doesn't mean you've sinned. Brief side note, temptation always results in one of two things. First, temptation can result in sin. We know that if we choose to give in to our temptation. But temptation can also result in worship. Because when we choose to reject sin, we're choosing to love God. And we're choosing to worship him with our lives. And that's the choice that Jesus Christ made every single time. It's not that sin was unappealing to Jesus. He rejected sin because he had a greater love. And Jesus was committed to fulfilling the two great commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And he was committed to loving us. His love was exclusive And it belonged to God the Father, and it belonged to us. And he didn't share that love with anyone else. He didn't give that love to any carnal desire for sin. He gave that love to us, committed and exclusive. And it was also sacrificial. The gospel tells us that Jesus sacrificed his life. He died the death we should have died in our place. Now, Jesus did not sin, but we definitely did. And our sin created consequences. It damaged our relationship with God. It destroys our relationships with one another. Sin damages God's creation. And because our sin had this effect, it demanded justice. Somebody had to pay the price. But God, in his rich mercy, didn't want us to pay this price ourselves. So instead, Jesus enters the picture, and he went to the cross Not because it was some weird symbol, because somebody had to pay the price. He went there on our behalf to take our place. And it's not because we were lovely or incredible. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet far from God, while we were yet enemies of God, rejecting him every opportunity we get the chance, that's when Christ died for us. So the love of Jesus is not transactional. Jesus didn't commodify his love. Transactional love says, hey, I will love you, and you will love me back. Or, and you will rub my back. Or, and you will give me massages. Or, and you will let me go out with the boys. 
or and you will let me shop for these things. That's transactional love. And that's not what Jesus gave us because we didn't give him anything. The love of Jesus was sacrificial. The love of Jesus said, I love you even if you don't get me anything. Even if you push me away. Even if you reject me. Even if you claim me by name but not by your lifestyle or your actions or your thoughts or your emotions. I love you anyway. And I will lay myself down anyway. That is the sacrificial love of Jesus. And this sacrificial love brought him to the cross. And the cross enacted and put two things into motion. First, he created a covenant. In modern society, the words covenant and contract are often used interchangeably. But that's not really the case in the Bible. Uh, In the Bible, they're very different. A contract is conditional. And usually, there's no moral weight behind a contract, especially if you act according to the terms. For example, if you are leasing a car, and you need to end your lease early for whatever reason, maybe you're buying another car, or maybe you're moving away. All you have to do is follow the terms outlined in the contract. You pay whatever fee you have to pay, and you move on. There's no immorality in breaking this contract. In addition to that, a contract is primarily concerned with what we receive. I will sign this contract because I have access to this apartment or to this car or to this service, etc. But a contract is different from a covenant because a a covenant in the Bible is meant to be unconditional. And there is a moral weight behind a covenant. Covenants are not made to be broken. And a covenant is primarily concerned with what we give rather than what we receive. And the clearest way we can see this is in God's covenant with us. To summarize God's covenant with us at the New Testament, you've probably heard this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, how many of you think that's a sweet deal for us? Pretty good, right? I like this covenant. It's, it's awesome. But have you ever thought about that covenant from God's perspective? What is God getting from that? I mean, we praise him and we glorify him, but he already had the angels. We're not really giving God much of anything. Except love as a response to love already given. There's, there's no reason for God to forge this covenant with us. If he's a businessman, then by our standards, that's not a very good business transaction. Except for the fact that his primary motivating factor is not what he receives from us, but what he can give to us. His sacrificial love, extended first, based on what he gives to us, rather than what he receives from us. That's that's the difference between contract and covenant. God formed a covenant with us. And finally, he cleanses us and he sanctifies us. Ephesians 5.26 referenced it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. To be sanctified means to be set apart for a purpose. Now, Jerrica has a lot of dresses. Right now she's got a cool mom dress on because she's in her third trimester of pregnancy. Uh, That mommy dress is actually sanctified because it's set apart for a special purpose. She doesn't use maternity dresses when she's not pregnant. 
Another sanctified dress is her wedding dress. That dress is set apart for a special purpose. Now again, who would like here to be set apart for a purpose? Who would like to be sanctified? Right. We'd love that. Except making a wedding dress takes a lot more time, and it takes more work, and it costs a lot more. To be set apart for a, spurp- set apart for a purpose, it takes time, and it takes work, and it costs us something. Now, there's a difference between sanctification and justification. Now, let's break this down briefly. Justification is a bit of a legal term. And it happens immediately as soon as we believe in Jesus. And it means that as soon as we believe in Jesus, we are in right standing before God. It's almost like we're standing in a court of law and we've been justified by God with no obligations, no debt to pay. Our our slate is clean. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is immediate and it's unconditional. But sanctification, to be set apart for a purpose and separated from our sin that way, that's progressive. And that takes time and energy. And God the Holy Spirit works inside of us to make us more like Jesus over time. And as we become more like Jesus, we become the best possible versions of ourselves. So even though sanctification takes time, and it takes work, and it costs us something, it costs us our comfort, it costs us sometimes things that we're holding on to, sometimes it'll cost us our self-image or our brand, sometimes it'll cost us our pride or our habits, but it's worth it in order to be sanctified so that we can be set apart for the purposes of God and transformed into the best possible versions of ourselves as we become more like Jesus. These four things summarize the gospel, at least parts of it, that Jesus was committed to his love for us, that he sacrificed his life, created a covenant with us, and he's cleansing us and sanctifying us today. So what do those things teach us about God's will for marriage? Because remember, if we understand the gospel, we'll also understand marriage a little bit better. First, marriage is committed and exclusive. According to God's design, love is not an open door. Very sorry, Anna. In marriage, a husband's great love for his wife and vice versa causes them to reject all others. You might have heard this read as a part of a wedding ceremony. Do you solemnly agree to take this woman as your lawful wedded wife, to love and respect her and to live with her in all faith and tenderness, in health and in sickness, in prosperity and in adversity, and leaving all others to keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live. Those words are about commitment and exclusivity in marriage. It's about being all in. And commitment has fruit in marriage, it's said that two-thirds of unhappy marriages become happy within five years if people opt to stay married and, and stay committed. But this also speaks to exclusivity. Marriage is meant to be exclusive, and that reflects God's exclusive love for us. Marriage is committed and exclusive because that's how Jesus loved us first. Second, marriage is meant to be built on sacrificial love. The thrilling experiences on a magic carpet 
They fade away. They change. They get stink when you change diapers all the time. And you lose sleep. This is not what you signed up for. Or, like Once Upon a Dream teaches us, we might believe there's a dream partner for us, but what if that partner doesn't exist? Or what if they change? Or what if our romantic feelings fade? Or what if our passionate physical desire fades away? These things cannot, be, they cannot serve as a foundation for marriage because that foundation is way too shaky. That's why the foundation has to be sacrificial love. It's about what we give instead of what we receive. Now, you might think, if I'm constantly giving and giving and giving, well, what about me? First of all, I won't expound on this idea a little bit more next week, but we get what we need from God first. I am a human being with limited capacity. I am incapable of meeting my wife's infinite need for love. So if she tries to come to a limited man with an unlimited need, that's not going to work out. Thankfully, we have an unlimited God. And I can take my unlimited needs to God. And she can take her unlimited needs to God. And then with what God gives us, we can sacrifice and give to one another. And as we sacrifice and give to one another and we participate in this process of giving and giving and giving, we find mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Tim Keller wrote about that in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. The Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Marriage is meant to be built on sacrificial love because that's how Jesus loved us first. Third, we learn that marriage is covenant. Biblically, marriage recognizes and ratifies a covenant between man, woman, and God. And that's also what a wedding ceremony should be. Now, weddings are often viewed as parties and celebrations and pageants, and all those things can be good. They're fun. But that's not what it is primarily, not from a Christian perspective. In a wedding, a wedding, a marriage covenant is recognized and ratified between God, a husband and wife, and their witnesses. That's the purpose of a wedding from a biblical perspective. And when this covenant is formed, it should be unconditional, and it shouldn't be broken, and it should primarily be concerned with what we give rather than what we receive. Now, we recognize we don't live in a perfect world, and we are definitely not perfect people, and we have failed to meet God's standard. All of us have in some way. But we also know that while we are imperfect people, doing imperfect things in an imperfect world, we believe in and serve and love a perfect God who makes all things new. So when we decide to take what we have, whatever it looks like, and we give it to him and turn in a new direction and follow him, he walks with us. The biblical word we we use for that, it's repentance. When we repent, God redeems and restores. And if we want to see God's redemption and restoration, let's give him what we have and commit to walk with him. By his terms, one step at a time, we'll walk with God. And finally, marriage sanctifies us. In Christian marriage, we help one another become the best possible versions of ourselves. We assist God in the process of sanctification. Now, that's difficult, especially for our culture. 
there was a survey done and they asked people, what does compatibility mean to you? And one of the most popular answers, in fact, the most popular answer for men was that compatibility means that you are accepted just the way you are with no one making an effort to change you. But that's in direct contradiction to what God wants. You might have heard the phrase, God loves us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. So how then do we walk that tension? Here's how. We aren't trying to transform our spouse or our partner into our perfect ideal of what they should be. It's not my job to turn Jerrica into what I think the perfect Jerrica looks like. We help our spouses and our partners, and we even help each other become more like Jesus. That's how we do it. Jesus is the standard. God's word is the standard. It's not about my opinions. It's not about my feelings. It's not about what society says. It's not about what your in-laws say or their in-laws say or what family says. It's all about becoming more like Christ and together seeking to be more like him and to praise him more and to love him more. And together, as we work it out, and as we become more like Jesus together, we're sanctified. We're set apart for a special purpose. We begin to see this work out in our lives. You know, this has an end goal in mind. When we are with Jesus, the Bible tells us we will be like him. And that means all the sin inside us, all the bad habits, all the brokenness, when we enter in his presence, it'll be removed and perfected. And as we live our lives, one thing that we live to do is become more like Jesus along the way and get as far as we can to reaching that goal. So there will come that day where we all stand before God. And I want to be able to stand before God. And as Jericho takes her turn, perfected in the presence of Jesus, I want to be able to look at her and say, I knew it. I knew that's who you were called to be. Everything that God has just transformed, the, the perfect version of you, I believed in it the whole time. And I'm glad that I got to be a part of that. When we participate in sanctification with one another, we don't belittle each other. We believe in each other. We believe in what God has called one another to be. Not what we think one another can be. What God has called us to be. So when we understand the gospel of Jesus and the way he loves us, it causes us to work this out in our lives. Where we see marriage as this picture that is committed and exclusive, built on sacrificial love, that creates a covenant. And this covenant, this promise of future love, creates a safe place where we can work together to be cleansed and sanctified and become more like Jesus. Now we're about to start wrapping up, but as we wrap up, we can think about things this way. Marriage reaches the peak of its beauty when it reflects the love of Jesus. Now, this version of marriage might sound like a fantasy, just like Frozen or Aladdin or Sleeping Beauty, especially for those of us who have seen marriages fail. I've seen marriage fail. I know a lot of you have too. And when we've seen it fail, it's hard 
picture it this way, but why don't you try? Just for a moment, a moment imagine with me. What would your life look like? What would my life look like? If all of us applied the love we receive from God and act upon it, what would it look like? What would it look like in the church? And not just this church, in the church. Big C, around the world. People who believe in God and people who say they believe in God. What if we applied this? Took the love of Jesus revealed to us in the gospel. Made that the standard. What would the world look like? Probably be a better place. And you know, while there's only tastes of it, we can see the impact. There was a recent study conducted at Harvard School of Public Health, and they studied and they discovered that regularly attending church services together reduces a couple's risk of divorce by about 47%. And other studies have concluded the same thing in a range from 30% to 50%. And that is regardless of age and ethnic background. It works. There's also an older study. It was in 97, but they surveyed over 1,000 couples, and they followed their lives. And it added two simple qualifiers to what it means to be a Christian couple. One, you go to church together. Two, you pray together. Pretty safe standards for Christians, right? Of those 1,000 couples, it was 1,152 couples surveyed and followed. Only one. Only one of those marriages ended in divorce. It's a failure rate of less than 1%. It's the beauty of marriage. Reaching its peak when it reflects the beauty of the gospel. God wants to take all of the mixed messages on marriage that we've heard in our lives through the people around us, in the society we live in, and he wants to fix them as it reflects the love of God revealed in the gospel. And when we act on the love we receive from God and give it to each other, the beauty of marriage, the beauty of God's love comes forth in each of our lives and we'll experience it more and more and more. And that is how God wants to fix the marriage message. So would you pray with me? Lord, first I pray that you would help us to identify the mixed messages about marriage that we've heard throughout our lives. For some of us, those messages came from the people we know and love. Maybe we've seen marriages fail. Up close and personal. God, I pray that you would help us to identify those things. And I pray that you would bring healing from those things in a way that only you can. Lord, you see the wounds that are on some of our hearts. Lord, I know my heart was wounded in this regard. But you brought healing, and I know you're bringing healing now. Holy Spirit, soften the hard places. Heal the fractured places in our hearts so we can see things the way that you see them. And then, Lord, I pray 
that you would help us to understand and remember the way you love us. That it would be loud and unavoidable in our lives. And that we would grow in this rich depth and experience of your love for us. And from out of that, from out of this personal and real, authentic experience of your love, that we would be able to love one another. God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.